Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Well, today we have the privilege of speaking with Jerry Mueller. Uh, Jerry is the Professor Emeritus of History at Catholic University of America, and he is the author of a fabulous book called The Tyranny of Metrics. And this is a book that has really changed the way that I've thought about metrics. I've thought about the way that it impacts the jobs that we do and the way that the things that we do are measured. And I think it's just a really worthwhile discussion that we're going to have. Yeah, and I I think I read the book in a Saturday. I couldn't put it down. It was fabulous. So let's have a listen to the conversation. Well, today we are very lucky to have Jerry Mueller joining us. Jerry is the author of a fantastic book that has changed the way that Wendy and I have thought about some of the surveys and measurements that are being done on all of you out there, a book called The Tyranny of Metrics. And so without um, stealing any thunder, Jerry, would you briefly introduce yourself and give us some background on you? Sure. I was until recently professor of history at the Catholic University of America. I recently uh, became emeritus. Although I've written on a wide range of topics, one of the ongoing uh, interests that I've had has to do with the way that modern intellectuals have thought about uh, capitalism and its moral and political prerequisites and effects, and what you might call more broadly the kind of interactions between uh, business and society, uh, which was sort of the the deep background of uh, some of the issues that led me into the tyranny of metrics. <laughs> that, that is fascinating. I can imagine um, going down a lot of threads with you about your work. But I'd like to start with one of the things that really fascinated me from your book, which is this concept of metrics fixation. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just help our listeners understand what that is. Sure. So metric fixation is a term uh, that I coined to describe a very widespread phenomenon in institutional culture uh, in a very wide range of contemporary institutions, uh, in contemporary business and contemporary education, uh, in nonprofit organizations, in uh, the armed forces, and not least uh, in the field of medicine. And uh, it has a few typical characteristics that I'll, I'll spell out and spell out some of the logic behind it, and then maybe and I'm sure later we'll get into the issue of its many drawbacks and dysfunctions, which is the focus of my, of my book. Uh, so metric fixation is based on a few tenets which seem in many ways to be self-evident in contemporary organizational culture, but are in fact what you might call half-truths. That is, there's something to them, uh, but taken uh, as the whole truth and taken in combination, uh, they're often defic deficient or dysfunctional. And those uh, the, the key notions behind metric fixations are, behind metric fixation is, first of all, that because we know that personal judgment is sometimes imperfect or flawed, we should therefore try to diminish its role 
in organizational life and replace it by standardized measurement. So that's the first notion. Judgment based on experience and talent is out. Standardized measurement is in. Uh, second, the second premise is that anything that can be measured can be improved. Or in order to improve something, you need to measure it. That's the second premise. The third premise is that people respond to incentives. So you ought to reward them if their measurements, their standardized measurements are favorable, and you ought to uh, punish them in one way or another if their standardized measurements are deficient. And the last premise, which applies uh, sometimes, is that taking these standardized measurements and making them public in the form of rankings uh, or ratings or what they call in Great Britain league tables, uh, that all of that leads to transparency. And that transparency is itself always a good thing. So again, the premises are uh, that you should substitute standardized measurement for subjective judgment, that you should reward and punish based on those standardized measurements, and that you should then make them um, public. Uh, the, and metric and that combination, uh, that kind of uh, that set of techniques has become, in some ways, the master premises or the master key for a kind of culture of managerialism, which itself believes that there are techniques of management that are applicable really across uh, any organization. So you can, you can learn them in business school or you can learn them in your administration program and then you can apply them uh, more or less anywhere. So that's what I, that's the definition of metric fixation. We haven't yet talked about the problems of it, but that's essentially <laughs> what it is. This is just, it, it, it's, it's great to start with that. And mm -hmm. I bet that everybody listening to this mm -hmm. has already said to themselves in their mind, Boy, I know exactly what you're talking about from those four different premises. <laughs> so, so yes. I, I mean, I mean, countless examples come up. But where did this all start? Where did where where did we start doing this, and and why did we start doing it, and 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 how was it moved forward in this way? Uh, okay, so I'll tackle take say a little bit about where, and then a little bit about why. Um, uh, where you know, ultimately, it traces back to uh, a kind of management technique uh, called Taylorism that was pioneered early in the 20th century and was meant to apply these kind of techniques essentially to industrial factory workers. Uh, but then it, it transmuted uh, in the immediate post-World War II decades when people like Robert McNamara, who was a young and highly successful professor of accounting at Harvard University, who then went on to work for uh, Ford Motors and uh, the Department of Defense and various uh, major nonprofits. Um, uh, he, he and others at Harvard Business School pioneered this, the use of these standardized uh, metric techniques. And after a while, over the course of decades, uh, they caught on in business schools, and then were sort of transferred through consultants uh, for whom, uh, in many cases, this was, again, the sort of master key to how to 
improve all sorts of organizations. Uh, and so you have this transfer of these standardized techniques from business schools, where, where the premise of the business schools themselves had changed, rather than preparing you to uh, be an entrepreneur or to manage a particular kind of industry, uh, the business schools changed to the belief that they could teach a standard set of techniques that you could then apply in any kind of organization uh, that you went to. And then, and as I say, that was then transferred through consultants. And of course, there are uh, a million business books that have one form or another of uh, metric fixation as their premise. Uh, there's all sorts of labels for these things. Uh, sometimes it's known as uh, KPIs, key performance indicators. Uh, yeah, it goes it goes by many names. So uh, that's the a little bit about a little bit about the where. Uh, as to the why. Uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, so part of it is based on the belief, which is again, one of these sort of half truths that, uh, people have biases and they're, they have biases in terms of prejudices. They have biases in the sense of, uh, limited experience from which they generalize and that that can therefore lead to flaws in their judgment and a good deal of you know, behavioral psychology and behavioral economics in recent decades under the influence of people like Tversky and Kahneman has been devoted to sh trying to prove how, how bad our judgment typically is. Uh, a very one-sided kind of presentation. Um, uh, so that's part of it. Uh, and part of it has to do with, had to do with the belief that public services from police departments to hospitals were being run more for the sake of their practitioners than for the sake of the public. And the standardized measurements, which were then to be made public through transparency, that this was a way of controlling and uh, reforming such agencies. In, in Britain and in many other places, uh, this went under the label of new public management. Uh, that term didn't catch on in the United States, but the concept did. So those are some of the reasons why it caught on. So almost a lack of trust in the people who are doing the work. We can't ah. trust them to do the job. We have to measure what they're doing. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, decline of trust in institutions and some of that... Uh, some of that is the result of a kind of general uh, anti-authoritarianism that arose in the 1960s. Uh, you find it in many Western countries, uh, both on the left and on the right. Uh, on the left, because they're suspicious of power. On the right, you have a kind of libertarian tendency that says, you know, everybody in government or in any organization is uh, is out to screw us and we ought to be suspicious of them. So for a variety of reasons, uh, there has been a decline of trust in institutions, some of it legitimate, uh, some of it overstated. But in any case, uh, metric fixation is often seen as the antidote uh, to this decline of trust. And does that also tie in with the decline of expertise? So instead of business schools preparing experts in a particular field to manage that particular field, they're now mm -hmm. training generalists. Because I think people in healthcare are feeling that acutely. Yes, I, I think that's very much the case. Uh, the notion that uh, you can be an expert in 
management or in administration, as opposed to being an expert in a particular field and then at some stage in one's career being able to uh, administer or manage it because one has a kind of deep expertise both in the subject matter and in the particularities of the institution or the community in which one is active. So uh, you could say there's there's a rise of belief in the expertise of administrators uh, and managers as such at the expense of expertise in particular fields of, of uh, knowledge and uh, professional activity. And what are the problems with that? Ah, uh, so... <laughs> There's a whole panoply of problems. Let me let me just uh, let me just deal with um, uh, Don't hold so, uh, Don't with hold some back. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So it turns out that uh, sometimes this metric formula works, uh, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and it often it turns it often ends up failing for reasons that are quite similar from one institution to another. Uh, so one is. One problem is uh, that sometimes what gets me what gets measured gets done, uh, and that else and that's what the you know the management gurus say. What they often ignore is that there are other things that can't be measured or that are very difficult to measure that therefore don't get done. Uh, so in any organization, for example. Um, there are some kinds of productivity that it's relatively easy to measure. By the way, the things that are most easily measured may not be the most important things, but even the things that are harder to measure that you can measure uh, leave out important things. So in almost any organization, even a medical practice, uh, you know, one of the most important elements that makes the difference between a barely functioning organization and one in which people are happy to work in and enthusiastic about are qualities like collegiality or mentorship uh, or just cooperation in general. Uh, and as I say, in almost any institution, that's really the, the grease that makes it function well. But all of those things are hard to measure and rarely measured. Uh, then you have the fact that people will, may orient their activity uh, to the things that are being measured uh, and, and, uh, and will orient their activity towards trying to maximize the things that are being measured. And one of the ways of doing that is what's sometimes called creaming or cherry picking. So let me give you a well-known but dramatic example. Uh, about 20 years ago, the state of New York introduced scorecards for cardiologists, which have since become, you know, much more widespread well beyond New York State and well beyond cardiology. And those scorecards showed the mortality rate for patients of cardiologists who were performing uh, coronary angioplasty. And the idea was to provide potential patients with useful information about the success and failure rate of each cardiologist. That was transparency so that patients could make an informed choice. So, that, so another way of putting that is cardiologists were to be rewarded for low mortality rates and thereby improving their reputation. 
So here you have all the standard ingredients that I've talked about, standardized measurement, transparency, uh, and incentives through reputational reward and punishment. So what was the effect of this? Well, to keep their scores high, cardiologists began to avoid operating on patients who had comorbidities or other substantial risk factors. Those patients were either sent elsewhere or they were simply not operated on, which means that in some cases, of course, they were more likely to die because they didn't have the surgery. So thanks to metric fixation, the cardiologists in question improved their scores, but at the expense of patient deaths. And those deaths were never counted in the scorecards. So this is an example of what we call creaming, and it's very widespread. I one of the specialists I go to who's part of a uh, large-scale medical practice told me that the comparable practice at a leading research, research uh, academic medical center uh, near us um, had a habit of sloughing off difficult patients, and her hospital system picked them up uh, and so the metrics of this academic center were uh, higher in her area, uh, and those of her own uh, firm were were worse. So this is pretty. This process of creaming is pretty omnipresent, and metric fixation creates all kinds of uh, of incentives to that. So then another problem is uh, that people. Um, Another problem is the problem of the diversion of attention from the things that get measured and rewarded and away from other facets of the job and other purposes of the organization that aren't being measured. And, and in any complex organization, and certainly a hospital or a medical practice is almost by definition one in which many things ought to be going on, to the extent that it's uh, that that metric fixation focuses people on a few of those things, it leads them to uh, ignore others. Another one that I think is particularly uh, it's important in many areas, but perhaps even more so in in medicine in general, is the tendency of metric fixation to replace intrinsic motivation with extrinsic motivation. So what do I mean by that? So intrinsic motivation means you do something because you're internally motivated to do it, because you think it's an important thing to do. It's a value in itself. Extrinsic motivation means you do it for some other reason, because you're being rewarded or punished uh, either monetarily or in terms of reputation, as in the case of the cardiologists. Well, when you have a system that makes clear to people that they are being rewarded and punished, and rewarded often in a monetary sense, uh, uh, that means that they are being subject increasingly to extrinsic motivation. And for many people who go into fields, look, everybody's motivated by some combination of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, right? We're all concerned with money to some extent, and with reputation to some extent, but Many people, and hopefully 
a substantial number in various areas of medicine are also motivated by intrinsic motivation because they think it's important to heal people or keep them alive or uh, or improve uh, their health in one way or another. But when you have a system uh, of metric fixation, it it's based on the premise of extrinsic motivation. And for many people in medicine and education and elsewhere, in government too, that can be a source of demotivation. When you get the sense that uh, the, the organization that you work for doesn't ultimately value the reasons that you went into the profession in the first place, right? Demotivation and demoralization, right? <laughs> right, right. And I, uh, I see that... Uh, in about 2013, uh, there was a there was a, a survey done of um, of uh, medical of uh, of residents, sorry, which showed that a in the United States, which showed that a very high percentage of them uh, either suffered from depression or were on the verge of it, uh, and that in turn is connected to this larger phenomenon. <coughs> That's very much part of metric fixation, and that is, <coughs> excuse me, physician burnout. Some of which comes from overwork, of course, but a it's surprising to see. I mean, it's not surprising once you understand motivation, but uh, once you understand uh, metric fixation. But it's interesting to see when people are asked about the reasons for their physician burnout, how much of it has to do with either the sense that they are losing their autonomy as physicians to these metric systems that make decisions for them or that force them towards decisions that they actually don't think are the right decisions, and how much time they have to spend inputting information into the electronic medical systems, uh, many of which are not intended for diagnostic purposes. They may be intended for insurance purposes and so on, but in any case, a lot of time has to be spent in putting this kind of data into the metric systems, and that tends to contribute to a sense of burnout as well. That's not all the problems, but that gives you some sense of them. I think this goes a long way to explaining what we often talk about, which is that the house of medicine is divided into the business side of healthcare and the clinical side of healthcare, mm -hmm. and that each of those sides has different goals. They operate under a different set of ethics, mm -hmm. and they're also motivated by different things. And oftentimes they come in conflict, and that's what causes what we have framed as moral injury. Uh, sounds right to me. I, I would just add that the, <laughs> <laughs> that the, uh, the kinds of s interesting for me is the fact that uh, many of these kinds of problems of this tension between what you might call profession, the professional ethos and the managerial ethos uh, occurs uh, regardless of whether the system in question is a uh, governmentally run system or an NGO or a profit-making enterprise. Now, uh, I'm sure that there are differences, but the this way of thinking about managerialism tends to be similar in all of them, and and even what we call you know nonprofit hospitals and so on, uh, obviously have very strong profit motives. Uh, 
and uh, so so one finds it in uh, in a wide range of organizations. Now, let me say something in favor of management for a moment. Uh, there's a tension between this professional ethos, and I don't mean just in medicine. I mean it's true in you know university education and so on too. The, 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 basically, the the notion in professional in the professional ethos is you want to do everything you can for the patient or the student or the client if you're a social worker, right? Uh, and that has some real costs. I mean, if you can, it 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 uh, ref it's reflected, for example, in the number of patients that you see during the day, right? So there, so one of the things that management to some degree needs to do is to put some limits on that professional ethos in the interests of efficiency, because it, it's great to spend an hour with each patient. But if that means you see, you know, only a quarter of the patient's uh, that you would if you were spending 15 minutes with each of them, uh, that's, that creates real trade-offs in terms of the number of people that actually get treated uh, and the efficiency of the, uh, of the hospital or the practice or what have you. So there, there's, uh, there's a legitimate tension in, every, in any field. It applies to you know, social work and education too, between the managerial ethos of efficiency and the professional ethos of sort of maximizing time devoted to care. Uh, I think it's part of the nature of what I've called metric fixation that it creates too heavy a hand of on the managerial side as opposed to the professional side. Now, the professional and the managerial can interact in positive ways. So uh, one of the key issues in regard to metrics, uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not arguing that measurement is bad. There are lots of cases in which measurement is good. Uh, uh, if there's two surgical units, for example, in comparable hospitals, and one of them has a higher infection rate than the other, uh, and you have metrics that show that that's the case, then it creates a situation where the, the less effective surgical unit can consult with the more effective one and see what are they doing that's working better. So in that, in those kinds, and, and that's true in, in areas like education too. Uh, you know, a teacher that's, uh, whose metrics are, are excellent can serve as an advisor or a mentor to someone who's, uh, whose metrics leave a lot to be desired. Uh, much of it has to do then with uh, how you structure uh, reward and punishment, and it has to do with the role of judgment and expertise in formulating the metrics in the first place. Uh, so when metrics are formulated uh, with a lot of input, I, look, it's, it's the nature of, of expertise that after a while, if all goes well, one develops a sense of judgment about what things are really worth measuring and what things aren't. Uh, and so if practitioners play a role in formulating the metrics, 
in deciding what things ought to be measured, that's a way of alleviating some of the downsides of metric fixation. And then they should also play a role in dealing with the issue of what you do with the metrics after you've measured them. Because it's, again, it's the practitioners who have a sense of the relative value of these things that are being measured versus the kinds of things that you can't measure. Jerry, that's a, that's a perfect segue into the next question that I have. So let me just summarize what I think what I think you said. First, it's important to think about what we measure. Second, mm-hmm. it's important to have practitioners involved in the measurement. And third, it's important to think about what you do with those things that we measure. The segue is into the question that I have about healthcare leaders. Mm-hmm. And when I say leaders, I, I don't use that totally interchangeably with managers, but mm-hmm. in general, that's kind of what we're meaning. Yes. Uh, what do you think is important for healthcare leaders to consider as they start implementing metrics or as they are using metrics? What are the other considerations that are important? Uh, well, they've probably all started to use metrics and are already using a lot of them. So it's right. lar- so I would say consulting with one's practitioners to see whether one is using the right metrics and even if one because the nature of particular fields changes, and even populations that one is dealing with changes, uh, to con- once you have a set of uh, metrics in which to, in which you've had already um, some input from practitioners, to revisit those metrics uh, every couple of years. Uh, because there's another phenomenon that I that I haven't mentioned, but it's important in thinking about this, and that is gaming the metrics. That is, this, uh, so in, in creaming, uh, in the sense of the surgeons and so on, is is an example of that. But it's a recurrent phenomenon in metric fixation that once these systems are in place, people learn to game them. That is, they learn how to maximize the metrics in a way that is uh, not commensurate with the actual goals of the institution. So that's another reason why it's important if you have a set of metrics uh, to consult with practitioners from time to time to say, in what ways have these become (laughs) dysfunctional? In what ways have they been gamed? Yes, yes. Uh, And then I think to pay attention to the whole issue of um, morale and motivation and whether you're using them. Again, metrics... when metrics are used in a way that is parallel to the intrinsic motivation of the practitioners, they can be uh, effective. So again, to get back to the issue of, uh, of uh, surgical units and infections, presumably the physicians and nurses and supervisors in those units actually do want to have minimal levels of infection, right? So if you're, if you're using metrics to show them who's doing it better and who's doing it worse and they're consulting with one another, then they have a sense, uh, a right sense, that metrics are being used in a way that is uh, in-keeping with, with their own goals. Uh, uh, and then keep in mind the fact that sometimes there's a real tension between the decisions that particular uh, physicians or staff members have to make and 
the metrics. So, for example, more than once when I've spoken on this subject, I've been told by people, physicians who were uh, who were surgeons, uh, heart surgeons, or whatever, that there are cases where if you're dealing with a risky procedure, uh, it much depends on knowing something about the patient and their priorities and preferences, because there are cases where the best out where if you're dealing with some kind of very serious surgery. And one of the and you open the person up, and one and you see that there's something that you might do that's going to leave that person, you know, highly debilitated for the rest of their lives and for the rest of what might be a rather short life. The best solution, uh, the best outcome from the point of view of the patient, might be death, right? But that's never going to look good in the metrics. So if you're the supervisor, uh, I think you have to consult with your practitioner sometimes and say, uh, gee, did, did, did she really have to die on the table? And the practitioner has to be able to say to you, I, I, on the basis of my judgment and knowing the particulars of this person, that was actually the best for this person. So I think there's that element too. Thank you. I'm not sure I'm going to quite get this right, but I feel mm -hmm. like what you're saying is that Managing by metrics is not what you want to do. Managing with metrics is the key. I think that's a really good formulation. Yes. Managing with metrics where you've thought about why you're measuring this stuff and you've had input as to what you should measure and you have a good sense of uh, the limits of what you have measured. Yes. So, I mean, management without metrics is more or less impossible and is by and large undesirable. But management just through metrics uh, is both tempting and often uh, the road to perdition. <laughs> Boy, have we seen that over and over again. So. <laughs> yeah, that feels very familiar. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. I think we could talk about this for hours. Mm -hmm. It yeah. is a fascinating topic, and I refer to your book probably about every other day. So I appreciate yeah. uh, that. Really that's, that's, that's a pretty good metric. <laughs> if we could raise that a little bit every day. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do our best to focus on that metric. But I mean, seriously, thank you for crystallizing this concept yeah. because all of us see this happening almost every day and all of us when you talk about this and you talk about the four principles of metric fixation mm -hmm. just keep thinking of examples over and over again and it's nice to have sort of a formulation to think about it in a way that has been described in a more more formulaic way i, I just think it's wonderful and it's really helped me to think about some of the problems and different ways to approach solutions to them so jerry thank you yeah, thank you so much. Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, Simon, that was such a fun conversation. I loved his book, but I love the conversation with him even more. Yeah. I think one of the things that strikes me as you talk to someone like Jerry is that we all know examples of metrics being used in a way that's less than ideal. 
but he's really thought about the specific facets of metric fixation that cause the problem, which allows us to start thinking about how we can still use metrics, but use them in a more effective way. Yeah, and even just having that term, metric fixation, I think is helpful to to just be able to describe this thing that we feel all the time, and yet struggle sometimes to explain what it is because right. it's a feeling. It's it's not actually it's not something you can necessarily put your finger on. Yeah, this idea of maybe we're not measuring the right things or we're measuring what's easy, not what's important. Yeah, and you know those three things that he said specifically that we don't measure very much, but that are the grease that keeps things going, the collegiality, the mentorship, and the cooperation. You know, these are things we hear all the time from physicians when we're out there speaking to practicing clinicians, and they're so hard to measure, but they're so important to maintaining the work that we do and maintaining ourselves and our jobs. When he was talking about those things, what I kept going back to was a conversation with Richard Lacomont about professionalism. And when we start eroding that sense of expertise, sense of judgment, the collegiality, the cooperation, that all starts to feel to me like an erosion of professionalism. Mm -hmm. I really liked the discussion uh, that you brought up at the end about how we can still use metrics but not fixate on them. Can you just run through that again? Yeah, so so what what I keep thinking is... I feel like metrics are used to control folks, to manage them. So if I measure something and you come out on the bottom, it's a way to control your productivity or your your output or somehow control how you interact with the system. But what I would prefer to see is that metrics get used as an illustration or as a learning opportunity, not as a reward or punishment. You know, that is kind of the difference between management and leadership in many ways. Exactly. Somebody who's leading by example, leading by demonstration, leading by maximizing their team, as opposed to managing somebody by metric fixation. Yeah, it's the, it's the carrot or the stick. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I would rather have somebody inspiring me to be a better person, a better member of the team than I would having somebody holding a stick over me, kind of driving me forward out of fear or frustration. And I think this comes up all the time when it comes to physicians, because very few physicians need external motivation for what they're doing. There is an awful lot of intrinsic motivation to be doing both the right thing, but to be taking care of people. That is intrinsic motivation enough. And so having to create these extrinsic uh, metrics and extrinsic fixation on these metrics is by itself a problem. Um, so the the stick is less and less relevant. Now, of course, Jerry said this, and we all know this, there is a, a need to still do some management. There is a need to keep an eye on what we're doing. But I think when you talk to physicians, most of them need very, fairly little motivation to do a pretty good job. Yeah. And, and I think the... The one takeaway um, that he alluded to was this sense of of how important it is for the two sides of this equation, for management or administration and clinicians, to be working together, not only to co-produce what metrics are chosen, but also then to analyze the results and decide on solutions. 
right? Working with metrics rather than for metrics. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios with logistics and coordination support from Kenzie Burkhart. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. And please, if there are people that you think we should be talking to, if there are people that you'd like on the podcast, drop us a line anytime. We would love to hear from you. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well.